People think I'm damaged goods. I'm worried about losing my job. Will I ever get a transplant? I want to see my children graduate from college. How can I afford this? I don't want to be a burden. I'm afraid. I'm overwhelmed with information. Sometimes I wonder if I'll ever fall in love and get married. I just want to play with my friends. You're listening to Kidney Talk, streaming health, happiness, and hope to the renal community with your hosts, Lori Hartwell and Stephen First. Well, welcome to Kidney Talk. Well, welcome. It's been a whole week. I haven't seen you. What have you been up to? Uh, what have I been up I'm still waiting for my kidney, Lori. Yes? Yeah, still waiting. I still have that suitcase. They told me to pack a suitcase, and now the food in the suitcase has gone rotten. Oh, well. You're not supposed to take food with you to get the transplant. They said take whatever's necessary, and I get hungry. <laughs> I know, especially when they tell you, oh, come for the transplant. You know that they won't let you eat. i got to tell you, that Swiss about, cheese. Oh, the they won't Swiss let you eat. The, no, they won't. Once, once you get the call, they'll tell you not to eat. Oh, that's right, because you're going to have surgery. Right. But, you know, I heard, now you you, you can tell me this because you've experienced that. I heard that once you get the kidney, your appetite just goes crazy. You want to eat everything in sight. Well, after a couple of days, I think it, it probably is from the steroids, too, and that you must, you know, you feel better. Yes, I've never had a problem, though. I always want to eat. Right. You know, one of the biggest concerns about people with kidney disease, and do I go on disability? Do I keep right. my job, you know, can I go on disability and work a little bit? Because I just don't want to be, you know, bedridden and know. You know, just stay. And the, I know for me personally, I want to feel motivated in life and I need to keep busy even if I volunteer, which is what I do a lot. So we're going to talk today to Beth Witten, and she's like a counselor or something, she's, isn't well, she? Well, she just is the expert in the renal community about rehabilitation and getting back to work or staying employed. I mean, a lot of people out there who have kidney disease need to remember that if they have a job, they don't have to let go. And, you know, I worked when I was on dialysis, and it was really exciting because it gave me something to do. I mean, too much free time in a chronic illness is not a good thing. It's horrible. Now, did you and, tell your employers? Oh, yeah. They totally knew. You know, one time I had this experience. I was on PD, and I'll never forget it. And we were presenting at this table, and it was some art project or something. And my catheter broke. My PD catheter broke right in the middle of the presentation. Is that and it, messy or what is that? Well, it was like all this fluid. I mean, it sounded oh, like no. a, it, it was just fluid pouring out of me. I'm not going to tell you what it actually sounded like. but Like a horse. <laughs> yes, you said it, not me. And, you know, all I said was, get me a clamp. Get me a clamp. And my boss knew, but the guy that was there had and no he, idea. They thought you said, get me a clam, and he came with <laughs> you know, clams with this cocktail sauce and everything? Well, well, the interesting thing is my boss went and got me this huge clamp. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, maybe a paper clip or one of those clip things. And they did. And I was able to clip it and get to the hospital and, you know, to my nurse's office. And they fixed it. I didn't get peritonitis. But it was really embarrassing. But what I learned when I went back, it actually, with the client there who was there, was really interested in dialysis and had a family member. And it opened up in this whole discussion. So at the end of the day, we don't have to be ashamed about our illness. I think it touches a lot of people. 
And actually, you know, they bought the job from me afterwards, too. Maybe I got a little bit of a sympathy vote. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. I, but I know in my industry that you really can't tell people, you know, that you have kidney disease right. because they just don't want to hire you. They don't want to take the chance. Right. No, so, you're that, what is it, George Lopez says you're the dented can? The dented canopies on the shelf. Why would they buy the dent canopies when they can get a whole new canopies? Although I wouldn't buy peas at all because I just don't like peas. <laughs> you don't like peas. But uh, anyway, when we come back, we're going to talk to Miss Beth Whitten. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen. Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. Hi, my name is Jenny Huey. There is a critical shortage of organs. 91,000 people are waiting for a transplant. I am one of those people waiting for a kidney like many of you listening. I wait for my transplant coordinator to call me with the good news, that they have a kidney for me. Other young women my age are waiting for that special someone who they met online at that dating website, Match.com, to call. And I'm waiting for the right cross-match. It is important that we all inform our friends, family, and coworkers about the importance of becoming a donor and to make sure they sign a donor card. Also, they need to discuss this very important decision with their family. We all need to bring awareness to the public about the importance of giving the gift of life so I can continue on with my life, dialysis-free, and have guys waiting patiently by the phone for me. Welcome to the show, Beth. Hi, I'm just really thrilled that you asked me to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is helping people to work. Well, one of the things I think is so uh, interesting in the kidney community is the patients that I come across, um, professionals that I come across, they always think that they patients can't work or the patients themselves think they can't work. <laughs> I have heard that story so many times, it just breaks my heart. Um, you know, and the thing is, I think that a lot of times... People make that assumption because uh, one of the problems is the the diagnosis is called end-stage renal disease. I know. Which a lot of people think, oh, well, you know, this person is not going to live that long. And we know that what that really means is end-stage for the kidney, not for the person. Right. So I wish that something could be done to change that. But unfortunately, that was like a government-designated name. and. We kind of got settled with it. I think it was a way to provoke a real sense of urgency to get them to act. (laughs) But, you know, there are are a lot of reasons, you know, why somebody um, might want to work. You know, I know that some people don't have the world's best jobs and they're unhappy with them and they would just as soon take disability as to continue to work in a job that they hate. But there are other people that that really like their jobs and really want to continue doing that because, you know, when you, when you work, you're, you're able to uh, make a contribution uh, to the workplace. It makes you feel worthwhile. It helps you to feel independent. You can pay your bills. You can do fun things. Uh, yes, it's, ve- it's very hard to subsist on, on disability. Oh, my gosh, you know. You know, if you're, if you're making a lot more than that, and then just because, you know, there's no work to be done. But, you know, I, I must say that when I was on dialysis in the in-center dialysis, I was, uh, you know, I'd go in for you know, the three days a week, and when I was finished, I could not function the rest of the day. And that is one of the, the problems uh, with in-center dialysis is that because you're only 
getting treatment three times a week for three to four hours. You've got all those hours that you're at home and you're, um, you know, you're, the toxins are building up in your body and then they get sucked off really quickly and you feel like you just went through a ringer. So Exactly. I would just sleep the rest of the day. And I, and I couldn't imagine trying to do a job with any kind of excellence. And, you know, I've had uh, patients that were able to work in spite of doing in-center hemodialysis, but I think that it really helps when the dialysis clinic... Um, you know, looks at what that person's job is and tries to figure out what uh, what would work best for that person. Is that person someone who could do home dialysis, either home PD or home hemodialysis? Could the patient do uh, a different shift time to fit better with their work schedule? Oh, yeah. Offer them a treatment schedule before and after work hours. That's my biggest pet peeve. You know what? I just looked today um, at the entire population of uh, dialysis clinics um, on the, the um, ESRD network report, and only about um, 18% of clinics offer evening time dialysis. Well, well I used to go at 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That's tough. Clinics that do that, but a lot of the clinics seem to start like 6-ish. Right, right exactly. And, and, you know, it's also, I can't imagine going in at 4 in the morning, which means you have to get up around 3, 3.30, and you go to the dialysis uh, clinic at 4, and you get off at, at, you know, 7, 7.30, and then do a full day of work after that? And, you know, I, I did have some patients. We our I did that. <laughs> clinic started at, like, 6, and we had a patient who was a federal government employee who... Well, they don't have to work. <laughs> You're so mean. <laughs> she, and she was... Um, in working in computers, and she did her dialysis and then went to work right after that. But most of my working patients seem to, um, you know, go to work earlier in the day and then come into the clinic at the end of the day, or they did home dialysis. And most of the patients in my clinic, and I had about 100 patients in our clinic, and about 42% of them were either working or in school. So, you know, they were doing something right and the the staff at the clinic felt very strongly that patients should you know work if they were at all if it was at all possible so um, you know we we did things like prioritizing schedules for working patients we told the patients when they started um, at the clinic that that's what we did and you know if they got a job or if they had a job they needed to let us know what time they needed and we would do our best to accommodate that and we sometimes had to move patients who you know, didn't have transportation problems, were driving themselves, mm-hmm. and weren't working to a different time to help the patient who was working keep their job. Let's say I'm in a working situation, and, you know, should I tell my boss? I mean, are there any ramifications if I tell my boss, can they fire me, can they let me go? Um, I think a lot of patients have a, a big fear that if they let anybody know they have kidney disease, they won't keep their job. Some of that is up to the patient as to what they want to do, because... Uh, people are not required to let their employer know that they have kidney failure or they're on dialysis or they have a transplant, um, and the employer can't ask them. Uh, they can ask them, do you have a disability that we need to accommodate, which you know means do, do you have a need for us to change your schedule, give you more breaks, that kind of thing. But they're not required to, patients are not required to tell their employer that they do have kidney disease, and it, it it probably would be worthwhile thinking about your relationship with your employer. How long have you worked there? Do they think of you as a valued employee, or, or have you been missing a lot of time? Are you, you know? Well, 
But well, what, what what if you have to have like before a job starts, let's say you have to have a physical and they say, well, we're not going to hire you because you have kidney disease and, you know, we don't want to we don't want to train you and then have you be in the hospital. Well, the Americans with Disabilities Act protects people that are looking for jobs or that, you know, that have jobs so far as what can be required so far as a, an employment physical and whether or not they could just do a physical on you and not do it on other people. They have to. um treat you the same as somebody else that's one of their employees in the same area that you're working in. So if, if they're doing a physical on every employee that comes in in your particular type of job, then, you know, they could require you to have a physical. They could require you to be tested for drugs, and, and uh, the ADA does not prevent that from being done. But um, if somebody offers you a job and then they find out from the employ- employment physical, oh, this person has a high creatinine level or whatever, and they decide to terminate you, they can't do that. I mean, that's that's against the ADA. Yeah, but, you know, I know in my business, every time we start a, a new job, a film or a television show, we have to have a physical. And the production cannot get insured, like in case, you know, let's say you're the lead actor in a, in a movie. And if you get hospitalized, they don't. You're insured. The, the production company's insured, so that, they can tell you that, hey, we can't hire you. You have kidney disease. That, that was something interesting that I learned, Beth. Is people say, oh, you can't get insurance. It's not about health insurance with when it comes to actors, is that they won't insure the film. That's right, what. Exactly. That's what prevents them from getting jobs. That's why public figures don't want to come out and talk about having an illness. Exactly, because they will shut. The production company cannot get covered for if they have to shut down. That's kind of an unusual situation um, in that, you know, most employers are not in that type of position. So it's more like the risk to their health insurance premium right. that I think most employers worry about. And, you know, one of the things that I've been real concerned about and I have talked with the dialysis corporations about is the charges for dialysis, keeping them in the reasonable range rather than the exorbitant range. because. The more that dialysis clinics charge or transplant programs charge for their services to commercial payers, the greater risk it puts the employees with that employer uh, possibly being terminated, not because they have kidney disease, because the employer will never say that. Right. Um, it would be something on the order of what the people that are, are dealing with being terminated as, you know, state they didn't the like premium. the hair color. The premium, so... Prosecutors are, are being terminated, you know, and they're now saying, oh, well, they didn't perform their job very well. Right. Well, and it's the premiums that are becoming so exorbitant that it's just too much for the employer to continue keeping this person on. I mean, they need to stay in business. And that's and, and one of the nice things is, and people don't always think about this, is that because the person has kidney failure, at least right now, there is a 30-month period that the employer would pay primary, but after that, Medicare picks up the vast majority right. of the charges, and the charges have to drop because Medicare limits the amount that a dialysis facility can charge. So for the first 30 months of treatment, your primary insurance pays, and Medicare is your secondary, then after 30 minutes, it's 30 minutes. <laughs> I wish She's after the thir- fast track there. <laughs> after, it might get down to that many 30 minutes, right? After 30 months, it switches. And so, you know, employers, I'm sure that every um, every commercial insurance knows about that, but employers may not realize it. 
So, you know, an employee who does get confronted by the employer about, gosh, this is costing so much, can say, you know, but in, you know, when Medicare kicks in, it's going to lower everything back right. down. Now, what can patients do if they feel they are being discriminated against on their jobs other than beat up the uh, boss <laughs> and hire a hitman? First thing that I would say is, uh, you know, before you go overboard and, you know, really assume that they're doing it willfully, is to, you know, talk to them and find out what are their beliefs about about you and about your condition and if your doctor needs to provide information about the condition and and ways that the the dialysis transplant program can work with the employer to make sure that the patient stays as productive as possible that's that's an approach that you can take that doesn't require a lot of money Um, Mm -hmm. beyond that the agency that really is charged with helping people deal with employment discrimination is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is uh, www.eeoc.gov. I think it's .gov, yeah. And they have information on their website about what you need to do if you feel like you've been discriminated against. And they work with the state offices of civil rights. They may be called different things in different states, but they work with agencies within the states because sometimes states have uh, their own discrimination, anti-discrimination laws that they can enforce as well. And then, of course, you can always seek help from from a, a lawyer that specializes in employment discrimination, and not every lawyer does, and not every lawyer also works on the side of the the person that's been discriminated against. A number of them work on the other side, so you need to be sure. <laughs> Who's working for you? <laughs> working for you, and some of the lawyers, um, the, the bar association in, in all the states, every state has its own bar association. They can tell people, um, you know, who to contact, and uh, there, there may be situations where lawyers will provide a certain amount of counseling for free so that they can, like, review what the person's situation is and decide whether it's something that truly would be a good case. You know, people go through the EEOC as well as, as, well as lawyers even at the same time. And there actually was a case that was filed in Pennsylvania that determined that People that had kidney failure requiring dialysis anyway, this particular case involved a a patient that was a dialysis patient, that that was protected under the Americans with Disability Act, and the case is called Fiscus v. Walmart, surprisingly. (laughs) It was against Walmart? The uh, woman was a peritoneal dialysis patient. I believe she had a workplace injury, um, and she requested accommodation to be able to sit as a cashier in her job. And she also, I think, requested change to a different type of position. Anyway, Walmart um, did not accommodate her, and they required her to go off on disability leave, which she did. And Walmart has a policy that if you're off for 12 months, or at least they did at the time, that you could be terminated at the end of 12 months. She got a transplant towards the end of the time, and so she was off longer than 12 months. But then it turned out, because they hadn't accommodated her, court the case had to go to the Circuit Court of Appeals. The district court found in favor of Walmart, so she appealed it to the Court of Appeals. And Good it's a wonderful, <laughs> if, if anybody has the internet and wants to Google this uh, case, it's really terrific how the, the lawyer for her described kidney failure because he did the best job you could do in describing how that impacts someone's life. And that's what you have to do for the Americans with Disabilities Act. 
So did she win a lot of money? Uh, well, it was it was remanded back to the district court for them to retry. I don't know whether she won money or not. But well, Yeah, you certainly wouldn't want to lose that great job at Walmart. <laughs> I'm sure it was a terrific job. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Walmart's had its hits, but it's also uh, claimed that it's made some changes, and I'm not sure whether it has or not. Well, every time I go into a Walmart, there's a handicapped guy at the door saying hi to me. <laughs> you know. So, listen, when we... Is to try to get a job where you get health benefits. And mm. I know um, that, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people think that salary is real important in your job. When you've got a chronic condition like kidney failure, um, whether it's dialysis or transplant, sometimes having good insurance makes a huge amount of difference. And you might be willing to take a little bit lower salary to be able to to have your health benefits. So when we come back, we're going to talk more about, you know, kidney disease and working and, and rehabilitation and everything. And I, I know for me, just to, to leave you before the break, that that uh, I always go to my team of Guido and Louie to enforce, uh, you know, my <laughs> breaks at my work. Oh, I just love pretzels. Let's, let me see here. One serving is six pretzels? What, are they kidding me? Who only ate six pretzels? I have to stay on my renal diet. I know. I can bite part of one pretzel. Then bite the side of another pretzel. And then I hook them together, and I can count that as one pretzel. Mmm. Boy, that was good. You know what I love now? A big gulp. Now if I fill it up halfway and then drink it and refill it to the top, now that won't count towards my daily fluid intake. Or will it? Make the connection. Eating high-sodium foods makes you thirsty, which will make you retain more fluids. Do you want to share a tip on how to stay within your fluid limit? Email us at kidneytalk at rsnhope.org, and we'll let our listeners in on your different tips. And now it's time to Ask the Nephrologist. Should I tell my employer that I have kidney disease? And here's Dr. Alan Nissenson with the answer. I've been very concerned that a number of my patients have had problems coming to dialysis or arranging their schedules because they don't want to tell their employers that they have kidney disease or they're concerned and probably in some cases for good reasons that they'll have a problem at work if they either have to be away at certain times or tell their employer they might be sick some of the time. And uh, I think it not only is it, is it illegal to discriminate against someone because of a health problem, it's unethical and inappropriate. And I think it's terribly important that people are open and honest. And it's not just with, with their employers. I've had patients who, um, if you can believe this, won't tell people that they're on dialysis. They have like, close family friends who know about this. 
but they won't mention it to other people. And if they're on hemodialysis and they have a vascular access and their lower arm will always wear long sleeves, not because they just don't like the look, but because they don't want other people to see that, then they'll know that they're a dialysis patient. I don't think that's healthy. Uh, I think in the, in the workplace, not only is that not healthy, but there are also legal uh, implications in terms of uh, not being discriminated against that are very important. Outside the workplace, I think that's also not healthy for patients. I think um, everyone has struggles to overcome, and I think keeping all that bottled up inside is not, is not good. The Ask a Nephrologist segment of this program is intended for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment from your physician. Always seek the advice of your own health care provider regarding your medical condition. The Renal Support Network and the Renal Physicians Association make no representations or warranties and provide no guarantees of any kind as to the accuracy of any information provided during the Ask a Nephrologist segment. getting social security disability checks and afraid of losing benefits by working, what should they know? Well, they need to know that, that social security has a whole bunch of what they call work incentive programs. Mm -hmm. What those are are programs that are designed to eliminate some of the barriers that there are to working when you have uh, a disabling condition. So, for instance, if somebody has worked long enough and qualifies for social security disability, first of all, the first nine months that they work, they can earn as much money as they can, and it doesn't affect their disability check at all. Really? Yeah. Because I was told when I was uh, asking about disability that you can make $800 a month. Well, that has changed, and that's after the trial work period. The mm -hmm. nine months you can make as much as you can make. Mm -hmm. So that what that period is really supposed to do is to get somebody into a decent job. It's like, don't take some piddly job that's not going to make you very decent money, do the best that you can and see if you can stay there. Well, first of all, during the trial work period, any month that you make $640 or more, and that's this year, this changes every year, $640 counts as a month of trial work. If you make less than that, it doesn't even affect those nine months. You still keep them. So say you, you've made $800 a month and you've done it for nine months, you've used up your trial work months, then you can earn up to $900 a month. That's where this has changed between 800 and 900. It, it changes every year. And if you make over $900 a month, then you wouldn't get your Social Security check that month or the next month, I'm sure. The other thing is that if you're blind or legally blind, actually, they have a terrific lobby and they have gotten their, what they call substantial gainful activity level, the $900 for people that can see okay, they've gotten their substantial gainful activity level to be $1,500 a month. Okay. The other thing is if you have expenses for your condition, your health condition, that help you to stay healthy enough to keep working, like you're paying for drugs, or you're paying for doctors, you're paying for tests or things, and you're having to pay a part of it because it's not paid by your insurance, any expenses that you have like that, you can show to Social Security 
and they can use that to offset the income that you make so that you can earn that much more than the $900 a month. So a transplant person who has that hefty monthly bill for prescriptions or for anti-rejection drugs can use that clause, right? And so what they could do is show their, their receipts for their bills in the month that they work to Social Security, and when they do that calculation on whether you've made too much, you probably haven't. Oh. You can be getting the income from your job plus the income from Social Security. Now, the other thing is, say you got a terrific job and you were making $50,000 a year or more, mm-hmm. which in California I realize is not a terrific job, <laughs> but in some places in the country it's a pretty terrific job. So all of a sudden, you're not going to qualify for disability, and you're worried, what am I going to do if my health turns around and I need to go back on disability? If your health turns around in the next five years, Social Security realizes that this is a fear that people have, so they've stuck in this program called the Easy Back On or Expedited Reinstatement, where you let Social Security know that you have had a health setback, and what they do is they put you back on disability and they redetermine you, check to see, you know, ask your doctors for medical information and so forth. And they continue to pay you while they're doing that redetermination. You don't have the five-month waiting period that you typically have oh, well. to get on disability. So people who have lost all their savings waiting during that five-month period don't have that again. And this is a national policy? It's a national It's called, what is it, easy? It's called easy back on or expedited reinstatement. Okay. Is there a limit of how many times you can go on disability? I've never heard of any limit. Mm-hmm. I think one of the fears, so if you go to work and you're on Medicare, you don't lose your Medicare. That's what I tell patients all the time. You're always going to have Medicare if you're on dialysis. Well, dialysis patients keep Medicare indefinitely. That's, right. just, that's just one of the things with... But what about transplant patients? No matter whether they work or not, will keep their Medicare for 36 months. Mm-hmm. At the end of 36 months, mm-hmm. if they don't have another disabling condition besides kidney failure, they're going to lose their Medicare no matter what. So they mm-hmm. better be looking for a job mm-hmm. that has health insurance. Mm-hmm. If they have another disabling condition that would give them Medicare anyway, even if they go back to work, Medicare or Social Security has this, this, uh, like I said, this work incentive thing going where people can keep Medicare for eight and a half years after they go back to work. When you're out in the community, do you think people know this information, or is it constantly we just have... Uh, I mean, because I knew about the work incentive program, and uh, I've worked with several patients to say, look, you know, you can have this nine-month trial period and explain it to people. You know, you spell it out so eloquently. But I don't think there's these new things that are always created, but they're like the best-kept secrets. It does sometimes seem that way, you know, and I, I, I try to do my best to let everybody know, but, you know, I can only talk to those people that I can talk to or present right. to those people that I can present to, and hopefully they will tell well, other people, but... Well, you know what it is. I think, you know, when you get hit with end-stage renal disease or any other chronic disease, the last thing you want to do is go through the bureaucracy of waiting in lines and taking a number and filling out forms and everything, and it's just so overwhelming to people. Yeah, and, you know, the disability thing and the work incentive thing, there, there's information that's online so people can look at it. If people have computer access, the Social Security website, which is www.com, socialsecurity.gov. It has a special site for um, information about work incentives and what they do is they add slash work on the end of the Social Security website address. So it's www.socialsecurity.gov forward slash work. And you can read stuff 
there for the people that are disabled. There's information there for advocates. There's just all kinds of information there. You can find out about programs in your state that have work incentive counselors that can talk with you about, you know, is it is it good for you to go back to work? How will that impact you so far as other benefits you're getting? One thing I forgot to mention in talking about the disability check thing is that if somebody's got SSI, a lot of times people have not worked enough to qualify for Social Security disability. And if, if um, they're getting supplemental security income or SSI, there are special work incentive programs that allow them to even keep Medicaid if they okay. go back to work. So your state has a Medicaid guideline, and if you're not working, you can only earn this amount of money. Well, if you have SSI, there's a program called Section 1619B, the patient... I love Section 1619B. <laughs> Between that one and 1619A, which I'll tell you about later, <laughs> and nobody knows about these programs. They've been out there since 1980s, and it just drives me crazy. But 1619B is uh, a cool program. It allows people to work or an income that is over the Medicaid guidelines for people that don't work and have Medicaid. As a matter of fact, you know, in some states you can make quite a bit of money and still get Medicaid. 1619A that I alluded to before, it's a, a, a way that you can earn income from your SSI check and earn income from your job. And what they do is they um, exempt the first $85 that you make and then after that, they start taking, accounting $1 for every $2 that you make against your SSI check. So the next month, you'd get a smaller SSI check, but you're still making the money from your job. So you're coming out ahead. And the break-even point, the point at which you get no SSI cash in 2007 is $1,331 wow. a month. Well, you know what's interesting, Beth? I think the thing is, if you can figure all this out, you're able to get really any job in the world. <laughs> It's it's so complicated. Why do they have to make it so complicated? Uh, talk to talk to your legislator. <laughs> no, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just like the all these numbers, and it's like, can't we just have one simple way of doing something? Does it have to be as complicated as the tax code? Um, but it sounds like it is. You just got to learn how to navigate it. And you know, if you look at the Social Security website, you know, it explains things. It gives. Um, there's a there's a book called the Red Book, and it's on the Social Security website. It's under their um, toolkit, and if you look at that, it has examples. I find that I learn a lot from reading an example. Yeah, that's the best. I mean, there's this website in California called DisabilityBenefits101.org. Yeah, I've seen that. And you know, that's that's a neat website. It has some different examples, and you can plug in numbers, so it tells you you know, what you're going to make. And so, you know, there's some great tools that are being developed. It's just a matter of letting the patients know that there's a lot of hope. You know, you can go back to work if you want to work. It's part of quality of life. I say this all the time, but too much free time in a chronic illness is dangerous. Well, you know, and <laughs> one of the things that I, I tell people is, like you just said, you know, when you go to work, you don't have time to sit around and think about your illness. Right. Or eat. I mean, you know, you sit at home and, you know, watch TV and well, you see Lori, every Lori single commercial. Well, Lori does work in the drinking a lot anyway. <laughs> oh, Stephen, you're starting those rumors again. <laughs> well, i tell you what, thank you so much. And it seems complicated, but I think people can go to those websites, which we'll post them on rsnhope.org. And uh, we'll list them for them there. And they can 
can also they can also get another booklet from Social Security that might explain things to them in a simple way. It's called Working with Disability: How We Can Help, and it's the Social Security publication number one hundred. 95, so it's 10095. It's all these numbers, you know. I know, I know. And then, then Life Options website, lifeoptions.org, has an employment book there that people yeah. can look for. There was a guy outside of my Social Security office had a great booklet. It's called How to Cheat on Your Taxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Sure. Go get a job now. <laughs> Dr. Mr. Shelton's in room three. Thank you. Mr. Shelton. Mr. Shelton. Ah, yes, doctor. What seems to be the problem today? Um, I'm having a problem not being able to sleep. Really? I also find it difficult to breathe. Can we open a window or turn on a fan or something? Certainly. Uh, let me ask you, do you feel depressed? No, I, I don't think so. But, but I do think my life is worthless, and I don't enjoy things I used to. And I feel like the whole world may blow up. But other than that, not really. That's weird.